Hello, and welcome to the Understanding Autism podcast, where we talk about issues related to those in the autism and greater neurodiverse community. I'm your co-host, Brett Thayer. And I'm Nicole Cabillas. Today's episode is the second part of our two-part series about autism and sensory processing disorder. If you haven't done so, please listen to part one. In that episode, we talked about causes and symptoms of SPD, how SPD impacts your physical and mental health, triggers for sensory overwhelm, SPD in relation to trauma, and how to get assessed for SPD. In this episode, we are going to talk about treatment for SPD, SPD impacting socializing, and SPD resources for adults. So Brett, how do you treat SPD? Well, I think it's important to understand that there isn't a cure for SPD, right? Nor is there a one-size-fits-all treatment that works for everyone. So just like autism and ADHD, it's a spectrum. Think of it as a spectrum. So SPD is also not something that people will outgrow once they become an adult. Sensory struggles are simply part of the package deal of being neurodiverse. It may seem like sensory struggles increase or decreased based on how familiar the environment is, how much control the person has to buffer or avoid sensory triggers, and what types of major life transitions create new sensory triggers. Also, keep in mind that aging bodies have an impact on how much physiological resilience we develop and how much sensory input we can handle. We have an exhaustive list of recommended treatments based on online resources and my personal experience on what works. What I would recommend, especially if you are in Denver, Colorado, get a sensory profile. Um, now, the reason I say Denver, Colorado is because they have the STAR Institute for Sensory Processing. That's where I got my sensory assessment. They did a fantastic job. I cannot speak highly enough about the STAR Institute. However, if you aren't able to access the STAR Institute in Colorado or you're not able to find a organization that specifically focuses on sensory processing, you can usually get an assessment from an occupational therapist and they'll do that in a clinic, at home, or at school. And I rec I think that, you know, being able to get assessed in three different environments minimum, it helps for you to figure out your sensory triggers in as many places as possible. And it gives good data of what sensory strengths and struggles your body has. A sensory assessment helps you to determine what your sensory triggers and sensory soothers are. You can't really invest in a treatment if you don't know what your baseline relationship to sensory input is. And we talked about this a little bit in our, our last one to two episodes. Mm -hmm. But basically, um, even though I was diagnosed really young with autism, I didn't know what my sensory triggers and sensory soothers are. And that really right. made a big difference for adjusting my daily routines and my personal and professional life to better accommodate mm -hmm. for my nervous system. Absolutely. Okay. And so, and after the assessment, then the therapist can help you create a sensory diet. I love that metaphor because when we think of um, a diet, what we're doing is we're thinking about things that are coming in that are harming us and things that we can do to avoid that harm. So a sensory diet then is a daily routine of different activities that promotes a variety of sensory experiences. So there's a couple goals here. One is to find self-care routines that can soothe an overstimulated nervous system and build tolerance and resilience with adverse sensory triggers. 
Another goal is to modify circumstances either at home or school and work to remove those sensory triggers, to identify them and to remove them. Uh, these activities are done at home and school, they are, or they are specifically targeted during an OT session. So in thinking about a sensory diet like food, a diet involves removing things that are unhealthy for our bodies and introducing new things that better support our body's healthy functioning. So there are a lot of articles online that give you specific examples of different activities and sensory diet schedule. So we don't have time on this podcast to cover that, but I highly recommend to go over this with your occupational therapist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and regarding accommodating for a sensory diet, let's say in particular, if you're a young person at school or if you're an adult in the workplace, I don't think you need to disclose what your sensory diet is. It's just a matter of self-awareness of what mm -hmm. works and doesn't work. And the sensory diet helps you to get very specific about what accommodations you need. And the more succinct that you can be in a conversation about accommodations and saying very specifically, I need this and this, and here's why, if you're able to tell somebody, this is what I need, rather than, well, you know, I, I have this sensory struggle or that sensory struggle, what do you think we should do? Mm -hmm. The more prepared you are to tell somebody, this is what I need, the easier it is for an organization to provide those accommodations for you. Absolutely. So some external tools specifically for sensory overwhelm are Lyco rings, weighted blankets, and noise-canceling headphones. Now, as somebody who has practiced mindfulness, uh, which I will say, I do think mindfulness routines can help a lot with sensory processing disorder. For most of my life, I did yoga, which... If you're gonna do yoga, I recommend more restorative yoga, not hot yoga, power yoga, vinyasa, mm -hmm. flow yoga. Um, meditation is also really great. Basically, you wanna do, you wanna have routines that are very slow and allow the nervous system to just kind of relax mm -hmm. a bit. Um, Qigong and Tai Chi are also really great uh, mindf mindfulness routines. The issue for me, is that I was very dependent on using these internal resources to manage my sensory overwhelm, and that just wasn't doing the trick. And sometimes you just need that external tool for that um, nervous system regulation. Mm -hmm. So that's where I think that, you know, the Lycra Swing weighted blanket noise-canceling headphones can be really helpful. We talked about in our previous episode about the touchpoint vibrating wristbands. Mm -hmm. They look like watches. They vibrate on the inside of the wrist at different frequencies, and that helps to combat overwhelm and meltdowns. That right. has been a lifesaver for me. I love these wristbands. And we have show notes that are going to link that particular resource. I would highly recommend looking into it. The other thing that I used is called a Calmago inhaler. It's not necessarily used for, you know, nervous system overwhelm specifically, but it actually helps a lot with those who experience trauma and anxiety. And it looks like an inhaler. And I guess it's kind of hard to explain without showing it. But if you go to the Calmago website, so many different videos that can show you, you know, how you use it, what the benefits are. But it's basically an inhaler with an aromatherapy tab. 
and it and it basically guides you to slow down your breathing. So I actually found that to be helpful, not necessarily for the overwhelm itself, but if I was getting elevated anxiety because I was having a hard time calming myself down, I did feel the Calmago inhaler was really helpful. Interesting. Okay. Um, the vagus nerve plays a really, really big role in sensory processing disorder. Among other things, there's a lot of links between the vagus nerve and digestive problems as well. And there are vagus nerve massages and exercises that you can use to regulate your body. I recommend the book, Accessing the Healing Power of the Vagus Nerve by Stanley Rosenberg, in addition to explaining what the vagus nerve does and how it impacts the body. It also has a bunch of really great exercises that various YouTubers perform, so you can get that visual component and the written description. There are also uh, three different YouTubers that I saw that have videos on exercises to stimulate the vagus nerve. Those uh, YouTubers are Suki Baxter, Lucas Rockwood, who goes by Yoga Body, and Katie Morton. There are body-based services such as craniosacral and somatic therapy. Both of these services had the biggest impact on helping my nervous system deal with sensory processing challenges. Somatic therapy in particular made such a huge difference in my health that it inspired me to get somatic therapy training. And the benefit of getting somatic therapy training is in a you know, if you're not interested in having a clientele Sometimes it's good to get these trainings just so that you can have a greater range of tools to help cope and heal your nervous system without having to pay a bunch of money to see a therapist. So this is something you could do on your own once you have the basics. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm getting my training through the Embody Lab. Mm. So, you know, it depends on how much you want to pay. Right okay. now, I'm I'm doing a certification on somatic stress release. And I really like that training because it talks about how stress acts in the body and how it sits in the nervous system and how you can do different types of body-based techniques to reduce that stress. So I really like that training. Um, and I think even just level one covers a lot of basics that yeah, I haven't started level two and three yet, but- right, right. Um, but I think level one provides a lot of great information that, you know, can help somebody who wants to help themselves. Awesome. Um, nutrition consultations are also great. The nervous, the vagus nerve function definitely has a relationship with digestion. And so even if let's say you're not experiencing a lot of nausea or, you know, bowel discomfort, the vagus nerve can get overstimulated just because of things that you're eating, even if you think they're healthy, that are just not agreeing with your body. So get an assessment to see if there is inflammation or intolerance that's causing nervous system uh, distress. Mm -hmm. um, better to do this than experiment with removing different foods, especially when there could be more than one sensitivity. So for example, with me, when I was 15, uh, I don't know why it was 15, but I was nauseous all the time. And that created a lot of anxiety, A, because my vagus nerve was overstimulated, and B, I had a fear of vomiting. Right. And so we couldn't figure out what was going on. And when I did the uh, 
the dietary assessment, they found out that I had a gluten, dairy, egg, and soy intolerance. Now it was it was a minor intolerance, and I'm at the point seventeen years later where if I eat a little gluten or dairy, like it's not gonna kill me. Like it's mm-hmm. it's a really minor sensitivity, but I do notice how it affects my body. So what I what I really like about it is that if I had just said, well, I'm going to remove just gluten, but I'm still nauseous because I'm still eating dairy, eggs, and soy. So that's why I recommend getting that assessment um, rather than just, well, you know, casein's not good for autism. Let's remove this because that might not end up being the problem. Right. And Um, I know that from our experience, uh, removing gluten from Joshua's diet had a big impact and around the same age too. Yeah. There, there are pros and cons. I think certainly the pro you feel better. I, Mm -hmm. I've rarely had to worry about weight gain from not eating gluten and and dairy. However, it is more expensive. Gluten-free bread is very expensive. So, so as a, as a teacher who doesn't make a lot of money, I'm like, great. I wish I didn't have a gluten intolerance. Um, but anyway, The general recommendation is to remove foods that have an obvious impact on the nervous system. So that would include processed foods with artificial ingredients, sugar, caffeine, and alcohol. So another thing that you can do to regulate uh, sensory overwhelm is CBD gummies and tinctures. I have a mixed experience with this. Uh, Initially, I did the tincture. Um, because I, I really wanted to make sure that nothing that I was taking with CBD had any THC in it. Mm-hmm. So at the time I was, I was taking, um, products from CB distillery and Charlotte's web, which are very expensive for a right. while. I thought it was doing the trick. Um, so what I was noticing is that I would get this temporary relief of anxiety, but then, you know, my anxiety would come back and I just kept thinking like it was my environment. So then I would take more CBD and the cycle would repeat itself. And I had a a doctor find out through a urine sample that the CBD I was taking did have traces of THC in it, even though it said it didn't have THC and the THC was actually escalating my anxiety and sensory overwhelm. So even though it was giving me, short-term relief in the long-term, it was actually reducing my nervous system's ability to cope. So then I switched from CBD to medication. Now, I'm not going to say what works and doesn't work. For me, medication has worked significantly better, and it's been more affordable um, when it comes to managing my nervous system issues compared to CBD. But there are some people who really like CBD because it doesn't give them as many side effects compared to medication. So if you're going to do the medication route, I recommend consulting with somebody that specializes in autism and anxiety. For me, I take gabapentin to regulate my nervous system struggles. I didn't know what gabapentin did. Um, I, that was just what, um, a couple of psychiatrists recommended. And then Mm -hmm. I found out that I had some neurotypical family members who are taking gabapentin for more Mm. pain-related things. So there's something about gabapentin that addresses nervous system discomfort. So again, I'm not going to say, you know, 
if you're going to go to a psychiatrist, say, I want gabapentin. Right, but, yeah, yeah. but I would recommend if you are going to consult, you know, look into having a conversation about gabapentin and see if it's a good fit for you. Yeah, um, that makes sense. I've also found that anti-anxiety medication has also helped. Now, again, this is this is what's helped me. And I would say, you know, to recap some things I had shared in our previous episode, my sensory processing struggles are tough, but they're not so difficult that I can't go into the world and engage with life. And there are some people who have more severe cases of sensory processing disorder. Mm -hmm. So what works for me might not necessarily work for somebody else, but Absolutely. hopefully the things that have worked for me can give people a stepping stone of what to do next. And this helped you driving too, didn't it? Um, so I actually, well, I actually started taking the medication like six months ago. Mm. I don't know how I made it through the first three years of teaching without medication. Okay. So it made a big difference. <laughs> I think it, well, yes and no. I think that um, teaching in general wasn't good for my nervous system. Right, um, right. There were certain struggles, but I think the medication helped me have a little bit of hope that I had, it was like a security blanket for me mm, Okay. Um, that I knew I would maybe be having a tough time at my job, but at least I had something that wasn't going to send me over the edge. It would kind of reduce okay. my baseline a little bit. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So this goes into something that I'm very clear about as a, well, not clear, but um, sensitive to as a parent in trying to um, help my child through all this is screen time and technology interaction. So the recommendation obviously is two hours of screen time, which I don't know how many people actually hit that mark, but it's the goal, right? So we should be all aware of how much screen time we have because it's not really productive for us. Other things that can help are uh, blue light glasses or yellow tinting on computer and smartphone screens. And so this, this goes to advocating for an accommodation that reduces your child's screen times in school or um, you at work, for example. Um, but in school, can you advocate for your child and how much time that they have to look at screens at school during the school day and how much screen time is required to complete homework, for example? Um, there's this societal unconscious addiction that we have to social media, right? So playing video games, watching YouTube videos, right? All of this is um, not necessarily helpful for sensory overwhelm, right? Um, and we talked about this in the uh, earlier episode. Danny Rady of Asperger's Experts, great website. We'll put this in the show notes, the link to it, says that video games may be fun, but they don't necessarily calm the nervous system down. And kids might not understand this, and they might not understand how screen time negatively impacts their nervous system, especially if they use video games and YouTube to decompress. And we know that some of these video games are like um, adrenaline-driven, right? Those are the popular ones. But if you're going to decompress, that's not the one to play. So some solutions are is to discuss how important it is for all people, not just those with SPD, that we need breaks from screens and screen times and what those appropriate breaks look like. 
So another thing is to get into good healthy habits when we do engage in screen or computer activity. So we shouldn't, you know, put the laptop on our bodies while we're working. We should have a dedicated place for um, using the computer that is like on a desk or away from the bed, for example. Um, listening to music or playing the radio on the way to school or work might also add to sensory overwhelm. So something else to uh, think about. Other things that um, impacted me as, an, as a parent of an autistic child is night routines and sleep. So Josh was a notorious light sleeper. And some of those can be related to SPD, which can cause insomnia. Sometimes you're just stuck in this hypervigilant state, which becomes this vicious cycle anxiety system where um, you know it's there to warn you of danger, but you can't relax enough to get sleep. You're just mind, your mind is racing all the times. Um, sleep is so important because it is the chance for our nervous systems to have a rest. And it's very important to have this nightly routine that is soothing rather than overstimulating the nervous system. And sensory issues can cause someone to be a light sleeper. Can I add um, something to that? Absolutely. Yeah. So I actually don't have a problem with sleeping. Um, my parents joked that I could sleep on a bed of rocks. Oh, wow. But what I did notice is, um, so the the last semester before I left my teaching job, um, I, I'm not going to go into it in this episode or else it's going to be a four-part series instead right, of three right. parts. But but there were some things going on in my job that were uh, very much causing my nervous system to be on overdrive. Mm -hmm. And I was finding that it wasn't affecting my sleep. So I was able to go to sleep, but then when I woke up, my nervous system went back to being overstimulated. And I think mm -hmm. that's where the medication really helped for me because okay. I needed something in the morning that let my body know that when I was going into that environment, it was safe. Now, I'm not going to say it wasn't safe uh, in the sense that it was a toxic environment. It really... It, I would say as a whole, it wasn't a toxic environment, but there were just aspects of the job that were really, really overstimulating, even with medication. And ultimately, mm -hmm. the right decision was for me to, you know, no longer have a career as a teacher. Um, right. But I would say sleep doesn't necessarily end the overwhelm. And, you know, I think also, too, if sleep does end the overwhelm, it actually makes it extremely difficult for kids with sensory processing struggles to get out of bed because you're leaving the comfort yeah, of of a, a routine that is soothing to then go into a world that is overstimulating. Right. Um, so I think that's why it's really important for kids, parents and, you know, adults on the spectrum to figure out a routine mm -hmm. that that's soothing in the in the evening and that's mm -hmm. soothing in the morning. Um, right. And that goes down to the whole uh, handling transitions issue. And and it goes to consistency, right? Developing consistent, predictable routines, right? That mm -hmm. can help in reinforcing, okay, we're going to bed now, we're turning everything off, or uh, the social media stuff is away, the phones are away. Uh, maybe we listen to soothing music. Sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes that's not. It's know your child, right? Um, it, you know, what are the routines that work? And then consistently do those night after night to build that 
um, memory in your bodies and our bodies that yes, okay, now I'm decompressing and now I can do this. And then when I wake up in the morning, it's the same time I go to breakfast and now I'm ready for my day. Mm-hmm. All right. So other things, um, fixations can impact our relationship with our body. So um, fixations are something that's going to get in the way of our body's needs, right? It's, it's something that's a distractor. So sometimes this happens when we're looking for more comfortable, or we're more comfortable living in our heads, for example, and escaping from our bodies than we do at being present or mindful in the moment, right? And that's because that um, being sensitive is painful, uncomfortable, and overwhelming, or being in the moment is that, and so fixations can um, be an escape from that. Um, otherwise, exercises. Now, exercise can be very important to move your body in a way that's restorative and fun. You don't want to overdo it, of course. Again, it's know yourself, know your body, know your child. You know, what are some exercises that are calming rather than, you know, running a mile might not be the trick, right? So again, a sensory profile can help with figuring out what exercises work. Um, often it's low cardio, low impact. It's repetitive. Um, it's stretching, um, it's it's light walking, something like that, um, incorporating mindful breathing. Uh, and there's studies out there just for neurotypical people that mindful breathing is a stress reliever. Um, is it indoor or is it outdoor? Is it gym versus home? These are things that um, can be assessed. Exercise is also tricky because sometimes exercises can soothe the nervous system while others can exacerbate sensory overwhelm. Um, the environment that a person exercises can also be a factor. Imagine being in a gym with loud music. That's not going to help, perhaps, right? As opposed to taking a nice calm walk outside. Uh, the type of exercises can be based on whether the nervous system is chronically overstimulated or understimulated. And again, occupational therapists can help you determine which types of exercise are helpful or harmful to the nervous system. Mm -hmm. And I think that the goal of the exercise is really important. Um, I, full transparency, uh, my husband and I are, are trying to exercise to lose a little bit of weight. Mm -hmm. And I think with that being the goal, you know, sometimes I push my body a little too far. Mm. So, you know, I've kind of learned that I cannot move my body longer than an hour or else I really pay right. for it the next day. And mm -hmm. so I think a really, I think that when you exercise, the primary goal is you got to meet the needs of your nervous system first. And then Absolutely. from there, you meet other health related goals um, because it can be really easy to push yourself too far and then get mm -hmm. overstimulated and then just give up on exercising. And again, you know, I think it's also important, um, you know, is the goal for strength training is the goal for, you know, just being mm -hmm. able to move your body. Is it about fun? Is it about being outside? Mm -hmm. um, you really have to make decisions based on what soothes your nervous system mm -hmm. rather than what um, is going to overtax it. And that that can be a trial and error. There are actually certifications. Um, it's like a it's like an autism exercise specialist. I don't know if it's a form of occupational therapy, but there are both neurotypical oh, okay. and autistic people that are are trained to basically give uh, people with autism like a sensory uh, profile mm. so that they have a good idea of what kind of exercise works best for them. 
Right. And, and knowing whether, you know, working out, quote unquote, working out with other people is helpful or not, right? Do you want to work out on yourself? Do you want to take a long walk? Is that, is that better for you? Um, or is it, you know, working out with other people? Yeah. Right. Because even a crowded gym might be like, nope, this isn't for me. Yeah. And I think especially if you're working out with a neurotypical person, um, the positive is they're getting you outside. It's it's mm -hmm. a bonding experience. But then the negative can also be like you might compare yourself to somebody who has right, right. more nervous system stamina than you. Right. So it's just a matter of like finding allies. And again, it, it's also about like figuring out what is your goal about mm -hmm. exercising and what mm -hmm. makes you excited to exercise. Absolutely. Um, all right. So my specialty, art and music. Art therapy and music therapy can help with building sensory tolerance. You can talk to your child's art teacher about using art classes as a way to build re sensory resilience. I think that this is an awesome choice, especially um, I know probably the most sensory defensiveness comes from ceramics classes. And you know, being able to talk to your your child's caseworker and say, like, you know, what are some classes that are going to reinforce right, that sensory right. diet rather than fight it? Mm -hmm. um, that can be really great. I know sometimes drawing and painting materials can be the same thing. And mm -hmm. and it, it teaches that creative problem solving mm -hmm. in regards to, like, being neurodiverse in a mm -hmm. world that isn't built for you. So mm -hmm. it's teaching kids to show up with curiosity and confidence rather than fear and, right. and it, disgust. One thing, if I can add yeah. something to this, um, the, something like that, drawing the, the ability to draw in notebooks was something that was a huge help for, for Josh. Um, mm -hmm. I have boxes and boxes and boxes of spiral notebooks in which he would just doodle and draw and and make these figures. I mean, he would fill pages and pages and pages. And, you know, in the beginning, it's like, oh, well, you know, this is this is cute. But then really what it is, is his way to process things that were uncomfortable or to calm himself down or mm -hmm. something like that. So it was really super helpful. Yeah. And, and, and advocating that for the teacher, right? So the teacher is not going to take the notebook away, right? So he, Joshua is listening yeah. to you, but he just needs to doodle. Yeah, and actually, um, a, a side tangent, um, that type of doodling is called uh, sketch noting, which mm. we don't have a plan for sketch noting in this uh, season of understanding autism, but we're definitely going to talk about it because it's a really great um, tool for Absolutely. visual learners. Um, going back to what you were saying earlier, for art therapy, there are two routes of making art there's process and product so product mm -hmm. is pretty self-explanatory mm -hmm. it's the the creation of an image that is supposed to be healing and cathartic okay. and then process is less about the end product of the image and it's more about the uh physiological movement mm -hmm. of using those materials and mm -hmm. i i i guess from a somatic therapy perspective i i definitely would advocate for process-based use of art supplies because if you're bottling up uh, mm. overwhelm or mm -hmm. or sensory intolerance, like what would it make you feel if you just scribbled in a notebook? And right. and I'm not talking doodling, just scribbling. 
-hmm. Or what do you do if you take um, a piece of clay or Play-Doh and you just, you're smacking it in your hands. And, right, right. and you're, you know, in a way you're using the material as a fidget. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that can, that can be really great. Um, if you're an adult with autism and you want to, you know, work with art materials as a way to build sensory tolerance, consider taking an art class or do a self-taught art project, you know, that helps you meet that goal. That's a great idea. Um, you know, time outside in ideal weather can also be really great for sensory processing. Sitting under a tree or laying on the grass, it, it teaches your body to be emotionally grounded when you're physically grounded in nature. Mm -hmm. Pets are tricky. They can either soothe or overstimulate the nervous system. Um, dogs are tricky. You know, the thing, the thing is, like, people with autism... Some people with autism love animals way more than they love people. And then there are right. some people with autism that cannot stand animals. Right. And I'll tell you, my husband, who is not autistic, he is a, he, do or die, we're getting a dog. And okay. I never grew up with pets. And, um, and we're kind of in this dilemma where he wants a really peppy, hyperactive, mm. high energy dog. And sure. I want a dog that's very mellow. Yeah, those and, are different uh, Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, it, it's one thing if you're a parent considering getting a pet that will help, you know, soothe your child. Mm -hmm. It's a whole nother thing if you're an autistic adult trying to date and the right. person you're dating has a pet. Like, it's just, it's kind of a crapshoot and, and it just comes down to knowing um, what your boundaries are with your nervous system. Absolutely. Um, the evaluation of routines at home, school and work, um, and then requesting for accommodations based on those triggers. We talked a lot about that in our last couple of episodes. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, those routines, even if we think of it as such a minor thing, you know, that that really makes a difference. And I'll tell you, as an example, as an art teacher, I'm playing music all day while my students are making art. And then I get into my car and I listen to music in the car. And then, you know, going back to the screen time thing, you know, I'm on my computer doing work and grading. And then and then I'm on my phone, you know, texting people. And then I come right. home and I'm watching YouTube. And it's these things that we don't think about you know adding right. up how they and, can accumulate and, yeah well sure. and and especially if maybe there is another trigger that is more obviously intense but mm -hmm. you know again it's 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 being able to really evaluate everything that's going on and asking yourself is this little thing actually healthy for my nervous system right and of course the type of music too right yeah yeah um, and then the last thing that's, this has probably affected me the most, the emotional state of the people surrounding the person can right. have a very big impact on your nervous system, especially if you're an empathic person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if somebody is anxious, depressed, stressed, agitated, hyperactive, chances are mm -hmm. that's going to overwhelm you. And when right. you're a teacher... You're surrounded by kids that are anxious, depressed, stressed, right. agitated, hyperactive. Somebody's um, going to be in your class. Yeah. Uh, well, and then you come home and then your partner right. is 
feeling the same way or, or, you know, you, your parents are having a bad right. day, you have a sibling and you need and, a break. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I think that's why, um, you know, people with autism and people with SPD are very introverted because they just, you know, they can't handle being around all of that energy. So mm -hmm. people with SPD sometimes rely on the people around them to create an emotionally grounding environment. So for me, I have for the longest time, probably ever since my autism diagnosis, I've struggled with social perfectionism and people pleasing. I do think that there's an element of that that is related to some stigma around my social emotional intelligence as an autistic person. But what I really think is the cause of these things is because I need people, like if people like me mm -hmm. or if there's this neutral view of me and there's good communication, it brings my nervous system in a homeostasis. Mm. And, and realizing that, um, I guess it really affected the way that I perceived my social perfectionism because I was like, why am I such a people pleaser? Like, mm -hmm. I don't care if I'm not liked. I know it's impossible to be liked by everybody. I don't need right, more right. friends. But having that aha moment of I'm depending on these external resources to regulate me, um, that was a big deal in, mm -hmm. in my therapeutic journey. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that basically covers that. So then, you know, then you need to be aware of um, avoiding people who are toxic to you. Yeah, but sometimes you can't avoid toxic people. Um, and that and I think that's where somatic therapy can be really helpful um, mm -hmm. because. Somatic therapy is teaching your nervous system to regulate itself independent of the things outside of outside of yourself. And that definitely includes people. And and if you think about it, like if you're a parent, like, you know, your child is so dependent on the parent to help regulate them because they can't regulate themselves. But then the parents get dysregulated by the child's behavior. So right. then they're not a soothing source for the kid, which then creates more distress. And then it just ends That's up right. in this vicious cycle. Yeah, I've been there, done that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. So let's talk about, um, okay, so your your child is experiencing this uh, intentional overwhelm, right? What's a solution is to take a sick day, take that, take that sensory sick day. Um, but there should be some some rules about taking that sick day, right? So you're being very intentional about how time spent um, during that sick day calms down the nervous system. So what do you want to avoid? video games, right? So it's easy, so easy when we're at home and we can do what we want um, to get back into the video games, but that not might not necessarily help us calm um, ourselves down. We need that break. We need that, you know, we're taking a break from school or work to recover, and we're not recovering because we have this intense video game that we're playing, or we're watching um, this intense TV show or YouTube videos, or we're on social media a lot, or we're socializing, or we're exercising too much, right? So the point of the sensory sick day is to intentionally deprive the body of sensory input so that the nervous system can go into a state of rest, something it very much needs. So doing activities that might seem relaxing, like playing video games, will actually overexcite the nervous system and further exhaust it. We're not getting the benefit of taking that day off. The problem is um, that younger children might not know this. 
So if, if a child comes home from school because they have sensory overwhelm, that day should be handled as if they were physically ill. Remove the sensory um, inputs as much as possible. Surround them with sensory soothers and let them sleep. Right, Kids with SPD struggle with sleep because they are triggered by sensory input. So playing these um, violent video games is not going to, that's not sleep time right there. <laughs> that's not going to help them at all. So buffer the child from other sensory triggers caused by other people, family, and pets, right? If it's basically, you know, if they have to do chores or something like that, that's going to, you know, cause agitation, try to remove those. So the same is, uh, applies to adults, right? If you're taking a sensory day from work and because you're overwhelmed, just make sure that sensory sick day is a self-care day that doesn't involve a lot of distracting and overstimulating sensory input. Yeah, usually that's called a staycation. Okay. Um, and and I would say like, uh, you know, even if you're removing those sensory, you know, like no screen time, I wouldn't even recommend reading either because, mm. you know, anything that you're taking in from any sense is going to overwhelm your nervous system. Mm -hmm. So, and then, I don't know, I wouldn't recommend depending on sleep as a way to, you mm -hmm. know, fully give the nervous Recover. system a reset. Right. I think some things that are really great are like taking a bubble bath mm. with like um, bath salts, laying in a Lycra swing, um, you know, think about it as a sensory retreat. So, you know, lock yourself in your room, get these blackout shades, mm. um, listen to soothing music if that works for you. Otherwise, you know, keep it quiet, have mm. like an aromatherapy machine and just mm. let your body sit there. Like even if you're not taking a nap, just like lay there in stillness and, you know, let your body either take a break from those overstimulating things or let it take in those sensory soothers and that's where that sensory assessment come come in and then and practicing that deep breathing too so important yeah yeah there's so much um scientific research on breathing and breathing can i don't think breathing will ultimately fix your nervous system but it certainly no. it can certainly help your body come down absolutely yeah so, Brett, what treatments and supports has Josh tried to manage his sensory struggles? Well, so, you know, there's been more than once where, you know, Joshua was overwhelmed um, from school, and so we had days off. Um, but the trick was that, you know, knowing this in hindsight is that, you know, we needed to remove those um, video games and things like that. It was like, oh, this is this is cool. I'm on, you know, uh, I don't have to go to school, and so I play all these video games. So that was that was the mistake. So the good thing is that we recognize that he need to be away from school. The bad thing is we didn't take away those kinds of things. Um, the, the other thing we talked about is that, you know, Josh is a light sleeper, so um, limiting screen time was another huge challenge. Um, and getting Josh to buy into why we're taking the phone away or what this is, trying to get that, trying to reinforce the um, consistency of doing this. Like it's nine o'clock, it's time to go to bed. We're getting ready for bed. We're putting the phones away out of the room so it's not tempting to do that. Um, that was that was helpful. And then um, earlier when he was struggling with group work, for example, um, taking a walk. So his his um, teachers would have to take him physically away because he was agitated um, and walk around the gym. Just him 
um, and this this teacher walking around so he can calm down a little bit. So those are some examples of things that um, were successful and helpful for Joshua. Oh, the other thing I have to do is, is to mention um, the tapping. So my wife has taken um, training for faster EFT or, or the emotional tapping, and sometimes that did help as well. And we're going to have another podcast episode. We might even have um, my wife on to talk about what tapping is and, and how that has helped Josh at times. Yeah, I think that's a really great idea. And I definitely want to emphasize the point about take the phone away. Um, you know, compared to when I was in high school, when, you know, the phones were, you know, just starting to be a thing. Um, now today, I mean, our students, it's like their whole lives revolve around oh, a I computer know. or a phone right. way more than like 10 or 15 years ago. We're and taking so, the world away if you take away your their phone. It's a, yeah. It's and, and, and I don't know, you know, there's a whole other debate about, you know, are schools reinforcing that by having so much learning happening through these online platforms? Thanks, COVID. Um, but right. yeah, I mean, I think that I think that that's such a valid point. If they, if they um, need a sensory sick day, you gotta take, you gotta put the phone somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And the other thing too is like, I find it interesting that we're so cognizant about having our kids put their phones away, but then we ourselves as adults have all of our technology in our bedroom. You know, our laptops on the ground, our right. our phone is on the bedside. So I've actually read a lot of yoga journals that'll say you know, make sure all of your technology is moved to another room. Mm -hmm. um, so then that way your body is very aware that the bedroom is a place um, right. for soothing. And I think that that also drives home an important point that like, let's say if you have a Lycra swing, don't put the Lycra swing right next to your laptop. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, maybe it matters, maybe it doesn't. But I do think it's important that you have a mindfulness intention of what does this space represent right, when it right. comes to the regulation of my nervous system? And if you think about it like a kid in a house, you know, the kitchen is probably going to be a more overstimulating place and the bedroom mm. should really serve as a soothing place. So, so what are you going to do in the bedroom that is going to make it feel soothing for the child? Right. And that, that goes to something that's pretty basic for a child to understand, right? We eat in the kitchen, we prepare food, or we eat in the dining room, we prepare food in the kitchen. So each room has its own purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's also good to, you know, have a collaborative conversation with your child. I remember um, when I was student teaching, I had a student who, she had pretty significant sensory processing struggles. And she just wasn't catching a break. Like even when she was at home, the dog was barking, right. the little, the younger brother was playing video games, you know, mm -hmm. mom's cooking in the kitchen and she just couldn't take it because even in her safe space, there was still noise coming in. Right. And so I think it's a good idea for parents to have a conversation with their child and say, uh, how do you feel when you're in this space? And mm -hmm. if you do feel overwhelmed, say, what can we do differently to make it soothing? And that might require, you know, a collaborative family conversation to to say like, right. okay, you know, during this time, um, you can't do these things. Or let's say you have another neurotypical child who loves playing video games, give mm -hmm. them headphones. Right. So then they right. enjoy the video game, but it's quiet. So then the other child has 
has some downtime. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of uh, treatments and ideas to reduce our sensory struggles. How about you, Nicole? What has worked for you? I mean, the whole reason I have all these ideas is because I've tried almost everything on the list. <laughs> and uh, and each solution depends on the day and sometimes the stages in life. I had talked about in our previous episodes that uh, my sensory struggles as an adult look different than they were when I was two or when I was a teenager. Right, right. And I will also say as well, uh, my sensory struggles look different now than they did six months ago. Mm. So there's nothing really consistent. And and one of my emotional struggles that I've been dealing with um, regarding my health is I have no idea why my nervous system feels the way it does. and and what I used to tolerate, all of a sudden I don't tolerate anymore. And it just comes down to meeting your body uh, where it's at and then having a really strong presence practice and not judging yourself um, for not being able to do things that you were able to do previously. That makes sense. So I talked about in our last episode that social, social overwhelm caused a lot of my sensory processing challenges. So what do you do if sensory processing struggles negatively impact your social life? Now, I, I think that this social overstimulation, I cannot emphasize this enough because parents can be very heavy handed trying to integrate kids with autism into lots of social situations to work on their social skills and make friends. For sure. Go play but, and make friends. Go. Yeah. Yeah. But kids with autism can get very easily overstimulated by being around people, regardless mm -hmm. of how great they are at socializing. Now. I will say as a kid, um, I wouldn't say that I I got overwhelmed by people. I just wasn't interested in it. I, I was more entertained like having make-believe friends and locking myself in my room. And honestly, maybe that was the best decision for my nervous system to just mm -hmm. lock myself in my room and, and mm -hmm. live in my own world. Right. Um, and then, you know, when I when I wanted to make friends, I I learned social skills. I was able to do it. Um, I guess I feel like in my teen and young adult years, I was able to um, manage having a social life and balancing that with school. And then that all changed when I became a teacher. Um, also, you know, COVID didn't help with that. Um, right. Now, not in the sense of the social distancing, but just how much work as teachers we had to do to just get everybody on the, you know across Absolutely. the finish line if you will mm -hmm. and um i remember during the last three and a half years of my life as a teacher i don't want to say that i had no social life i feel like i was barely managing the friends that i had and it sucks because when you're autistic and you struggle making friends. And then you finally have this great social group. Um, then you're not able to enjoy it because you're exhausted from work. So right, that's a good point. The last thing I wanted to do after a day of work or even on the weekend, I didn't want to hang out with people because my job was so social. Mm. And so I, I, I learned, which, you know, gets me to my next point. It's okay if you have a few friends. Right. Sometimes it's okay if if the person with autism or sensory processing disorder doesn't have friends or goes out on playdates or attends parties. School alone can drain a kid with autism so much that they need time alone to rejuvenate. So right, right. 
And the thing is, like, I learned social skills from reading books and talking to adults. I did not learn social skills by being constantly thrown into social predicaments and interacting with peers. Now, what? I do that think work. Well, and I think like I think it's important, you know, because you you learn all these skills and you actually need to right, like right. practice them in real life. But like mm -hmm. if if the kid isn't is isn't socializing to the extent that you as a parent think they should, it doesn't mm -hmm. mean there aren't other ways for them to learn social skills. And right. the other thing that's important, which I think is important for all people, is how many friends can you realistically manage and how much energy are you willing to put in? Like, no joke, my husband has social commitments that total to 20 hours a week. I'd go nuts if I had that. Yeah. My commitment, you know, I talk to my friends who all live out of state once a month for an hour on the phone. And that works for me because I get to go for a walk outside, talk to them, come home, okay. do whatever I want. Um, and then the other thing, too, is like, you know, I, I don't think this is abnormal, but I can't socialize longer than like three hours. And my my yeah, husband and some time. of well, and my husband and some of his friends, they'll hang out between like four to nine hours. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not going to hang out with somebody to the point that it, it's as long enough as I'm working a job. Mm -hmm. I value my alone time too much. Right, um, right. You know, and then the, there's the other piece of it, too, where it's like, if, I, if I'm working this social job, like being an educator, and I have so limited resources for socializing, my priority is my family, like as in my brother and my parents and mm -hmm. my husband. And eventually, you know, when my husband and I have kids, that's going to be the priority. For and sure. so, you know, I, I have routines with friends, but I don't want the routines with friends to burn me out. And right. I don't go to every single social gathering. And, and the other thing that I've learned is that, um, there's a certain maximum capacity of, you know, how many people I can be with as well. So I do better with kind of those one-on-one -on -one or very small group engagements. I'm not going to go out with a giant group of people. And, and I will say there are different social skills for one-on-one -on -one friendships than there are with a group of friends. For sure. Yeah. Anyway, um, you can also have an extroverted autistic child. Yes, they exist that can be overstimulated by social situations. I am that person. Um, I think that it surprises people, including my parents, that I I can talk to people uh, that I have really good social skills. And, and I, you know, and again, I, I used to work a very social job, but it doesn't mean that socializing soothed my nervous system. For some people it does, it doesn't for me. So I used to think that I was an extrovert and I think I'm more ambiverted and, and even sometimes I think I'm, I think teaching has made me more introverted for sure. Interesting. Um, and I think that because of how draining the in-person interactions can be, it's one of the reasons why people with autism enjoy online social interactions. Um, because the online socializing removes a lot of sensory triggers that happen during in-person interactions. Yeah, and that makes sense. Now, I'm not the biggest like 
I don't make a lot of friends online. Um, but what I what I will say is, if all you do is type on a computer or all you're doing is like talking and you're not, you know, hey, let's make plans to go to this one spot or, you know, you're not having to deal with touch or right. eating food, you know, I think that that is appealing to, right. you know, to be in a in a social environment that eliminates a lot of social things. Now, granted, it increases screen time, which is also not great, but, right, right. you know to each his own. Um, let's see. So I, I, I will also say too, that Sundays, it was really hard for me, um, to, to hang out with friends on Sundays because Sundays were my transition day. Um, and I just like, I, I just had so much anxiety and angst. And this has been true since I was a kid about, just not being able to handle that transition into a work week or going back right. to school. And so I felt like in order to handle that transition, I needed to use that time, ironically, to be organized. Uh, Sundays were my chore day, being able to do laundry, clean, um, make art, just mm -hmm. being in my own space. Um, mm -hmm. Or, you know, being with my husband, who is a very, like, introverted grounded person and so it just i guess i always felt like if i socialized on sundays right there was no downtime for you yeah there wasn't any downtime so i made sure that i i socialized on on fridays and saturdays and and like i said you know um i think my my friendships are very hands-off like for me having routine commitments with my friends once a month works for me and it works for them. And Great. it doesn't, you know, and that's fine. Like it doesn't have to be 20 hours a week, like right. what my husband does. Um, right. and, and, and again, you know, kind of revisiting the point, like you don't want your job or you don't want school to, to create so much emotional and sensory burnout that you don't have a social life. And, as I kind of said before, like, it's so hard to get to the point where you have friends and you can't even enjoy them because you're just so exhausted from socializing. But it also brings up the point that maybe it is hard to maintain friendships because you don't have anything in the tank for other people. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so, and, you know, my, my social tolerance uh, has gotten a lot smaller the older I get. You'd think it'd be the okay. other way around. Like, you you don't have that tolerance as a kid, and then it mm -hmm. gets a little bit better as an adult. For me, it, it was the opposite. Um, granted, I think, like, I don't want to say that I, I didn't have social tolerance as a child. I think it was more that um, I didn't have the skills to know how to socialize. Now I have the skills. I just get overstimulated. Right. Um, so my therapist said, you know, don't don't go to any social gatherings that have more than 10 people. Interesting. So, you know, weddings are hard for me to go to now. That would be um, that was the first thought in my mind. Oh, yeah. Weddings, weddings, baby showers. Um, you know, my my brother's turning 30 in a month and he's having like a big party with his friends who are basically frat boys at heart. 
They love drinking. They love partying. Mm -hmm. They they love playing games. That's too much for me. And I told my parents that. And it's fine because then we're going to do a family dinner a couple days later. And so I think that it's it's been healthy for me to say I don't care if this is family or Ooh. I don't care if somebody's going to be disappointed. Mm-hmm. I, Speaking I'd up ra- for you and and knowing what your boundaries are. Well, yeah, and I'd rather that people be disappointed that I can't go than going and then my parents having to deal with a meltdown. Right, and being miserable. Well, and me being miserable too. Right, yeah. right, exactly. Um, so moral of the story. It's important to figure out how many friends you can manage and how much time you want to put into your social life. Um, I think right now I have about 15 friends and each friend gets an hour of my attention once a month. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's important to kind of have that awareness of like, what do you prefer and what are your limits? And don't, you know, it's okay if those values are different than your parents, especially if your parents are more extroverted. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, are the activities that you are doing with your friends overstimulating? How long do these activities last? Mm -hmm. You know, going back to earlier, like, I cannot stand socializing longer than three hours. Another thing I hate is I hate staying up late. I'm an an early to bed, early to rise person. I just shut down after like eight or nine o'clock at night. And so, uh, luckily some of my best friends also shut down at nine Mm -hmm. o'clock at night. Um, and my husband and I, you know, he, he wants to stay out late with friends. I don't. So one thing we agreed on is taking separate cars. So I'm not stuck having to, you know, being resentful because he wants to be with his friends and I can't go home or vice versa where he has to leave early because I'm tired. Oh, that's a great compromise. Um, It's also a good idea to do some self-care activities to soothe your nervous system before going out to see friends so you can actually handle the interaction. Um, You know, making sure that those interactions are positive rather than draining. Um, For example, uh, I just can't handle friends that need a lot of mental health support or bring a lot of drama into the friendship. And, And I say this a little ironically because I've heard so many people who have a background in counseling, um, they have friends or significant others that sort of abuse their counseling skills and basically get free counseling. And here I am about to get my master's in counseling. Yeah, just don't tell anybody. Yeah, well, uh, how do you not tell people you're getting a master's? As I I put this out on our public podcast. That's um, right. So I remember... um, if I have an autistic friend that talks for hours and end, oh, never mind. That that's about special interest. So anyway, like if I'm teaching and I'm spending that whole day trying to support, you know, a student with a mental health crisis, the last thing I want to do is like support a friend who also has a mental health crisis. And right, and it also right. depends on like how close the person is or like um, you know, I used to have two friends on the spectrum. One of them had struggles and I, for whatever reason, because of the dynamic of our friendship or his personality, um, I was able to handle and be that kind of support. Mm. And then there was another person with autism who had mental health struggles and I just, I just couldn't be there. Right. You know, and 
and there's that whole thing of like, maybe you can only handle one friend that's going through a mental health distress. Um, right. And that, and that's communicating to your friends too. It's like, you know, I gotta go, you know, I, I love you. I care about you, but I just need a break and, yeah. and having them have that understanding like, okay. Yeah, definitely. Um, the other thing too, that can be really draining. And I learned this as an autistic person who's had autistic friends it's really important that you have special interests that are aligned um, mm. because when you get your ear talked off for hours and end about something that you can't relate to or you're not able to ask questions about because it you, you're just like, I don't even understand the thing that you're talking about. It takes right. a massive amount of mental energy to listen and follow along. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, those friendships weren't satisfying because I just, again, like at the end of a of work day, I just didn't have that, that stamina. And usually if I'm going to listen to somebody talk about a special interest for hours on end, it's usually going to be my students before it's my friend. Okay. Yeah. It's okay to have your social circle be a bit small because of your nervous system. That said, not having any social life isn't healthy either. So talk Absolutely. to an occupational therapist about how socializing can be part of your sensory diet. And then in regards to dating, um, this is all make, you, this is all yeah. you, here you go. Yeah. So make sure that the person that you are dating and eventually living with has a lifestyle that complements your sensory and social needs. Um, that makes sense. My husband and I joke that we have like a really boring, um, home life, but it, we love it. Um, mm. we literally spend almost every night, including weekends, making art, watching TV and cooking dinner. If nice. we go out on dates, it's very, very casual dinner. Um, we like going to art museums. Sometimes we'll go for a walk, but mm -hmm. we rarely go out on dates. I, I don't think we've ever gone on like an adventurous date. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I love being married to somebody that's not adventurous because I, I don't think I could handle being married to somebody like that. Um, and the other thing too is even though he has uh, friends, um, you know, that he sees 20 hours a week. It's not like I'm dragged into those things. So, you know, right. some so you extroverted, your... yeah. So some extroverted partners like want their, mm -hmm. want their significant Absolutely. other to join them. And, you know, I think my, my husband and I have a really great rapport about like, mm -hmm. you need alone time. Great. Right. Uh, I'm going to go do something else. Like we're totally okay with that. And that's, so, that's super, super important. My wife and I have that arrangement as well. She, you know, cause I get, I'm the extrovert. She's the introvert. I want to stay up. She does not. Um, I love going to concerts until, you know, late and she's like, no, nah, I'm done. <laughs> so knowing that and being able to communicate that and, um, being okay with that and having, you know, that separation is, is perfect. Yeah. And, and I don't think that even outs you for being autistic because no, there are neurotypical not. introverts that don't want to do those things either. Correct. Correct. Um, so what I really like about my husband is, you know, it feeds our introvert needs mm -hmm. and then our friends feed our extrovert needs. So nice. I think I think regardless of your temperament, you know, I think everybody has an introvert need and an extrovert need. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I talked about this before. We have a lot of independent time from each other, which has helped a lot with my sensory self-care activities. Okay. Um, so offering a dating tip, how often do you want to go on dates? 
Do you have the energy to? Mm-hmm. Are restaurants going to be too overstimulating? I didn't do the online dating thing. I I met my husband in college. Um, but, you know, I think for people who are single and trying to do the the online dating thing, you know, I don't know if I could handle it if I were single, you know, just giving up that time to nourish your nervous system to go out with a stranger that you're not totally sure how it's going to work. And then you got to expel all this energy. Now it can be worth it, but you know, it's like, how often do you want to do that? And, you know, dating can be extremely exhausting for people with autism because that's one of the places where we have to mask so much. Right. And that it's just a huge unknown. It's a huge set of unknowns, right? You might be going to a new place, meeting a new person. You don't know the environment, right? Um, So there's a lot of unknowns, which might create an anxiety as well. Mm -hmm. Um, How important is it that your partner gets you out of your comfort zone? Um, You know, if you are naturally introverted and you have a very extroverted partner that gets you into social situations, you know, sometimes that can help combat sensory defensiveness, gets you a little more socially confident. Um, but if, let's say, um, you have somebody who's also very introverted and you're introverted, it may reinforce that sensory defensiveness because mm. you're you're not building that window of tolerance over time. Right. Um, now, sensory profiles also have a huge impact on sex whether that be positions during sex, the environment where you're having sex, or the objects that you are using during it, the more you know about your body, the better communication you will have with your partner about your sexual preferences. And I think without going into a ton of detail, having a sensory profile has made the world of difference um, when it's come to sex, because to be honest, I'm not the biggest fan of sex, and that is because it creates so much sensory discomfort and overwhelm for me, even though it is with somebody that I love. And so having this awareness of, I get soothed by tactile stimuli. So, Mm. you know, I know that when my husband and I have sex, it's good that we have like a lot of soft things around um, because the soft things make me feel safe and and more Mm. trusting. Um, so communication if I, is key. Communication. Yeah, yeah, and and also like if I have um, vestibular overwhelm, maybe I don't want to be on top. I don't want to be the one that's doing all the thrusting. Maybe I want to be right, laying right. down while somebody else does all the work. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you if you're having struggles with sex, especially if you're an autistic woman, that can be uh, a sensory profile can make a very very big difference for that. Good to know. Uh, yeah. So that was a long list of tips. Um, yes, <laughs> Brett, do you want to add anything to this based on Josh's experience with socializing? I think I think ultimately it goes down to something that we've been talking about over and over during this podcast is knowing thyself, right? Knowing yourself um, and learning as a person on the spectrum, what are the things that drain you and what are the things that fill that bucket back up, right? And that's a lifelong skill for all of us. Yeah, definitely. All right. So we're coming down to the end of the podcast, and now we're getting to um, resources for adults with um, SPD. Um, As Nicole has mentioned, the STAR Institute for SPD has a ton of articles and videos. Um, We'll put the link to their um, institution on our web notes 
or our show notes, um, especially pertaining to adults. So these videos could be found on YouTube and they're working on creating a supporting group for adults um, with SPD. So there's also, speaking of those groups, there's also groups on Facebook um, and meetup groups. Maybe they don't focus on SPD by itself, but there are um, meetup groups for people um, on the spectrum and ADHD. Um, as far as books for adults, there's a lot of books out there. Too Loud, Too Bright, Too Fast, Too Tight by Sharon Heller is one. Highly Sensitive Person book series. I think we've mentioned this before um, by Dr. Elaine Aaron, including The Highly Sensitive Child. Yes, I know we have because we put it in the show notes. Uh, Making the uh, Work Work for the Highly Sensitive Person by Barry Yeager. Uh, the Body Keeps Score by Bressel van Kolk. Um, a Good for Trauma and Sensory Interaction and Assessing the Healing Power of the Vagus Nerve by Stanley Rosenberg. Um, and also check out YouTube channels, Sensory Spectacle. We'll put all those links to, to these resources in the episode notes in mm -hmm. um, on our website. Yeah, and so, when it comes to the Highly Sensitive Person series, um, just to cover some quick topics, um, one book focuses on just what is a highly sensitive person. Um, there's also the Highly Sensitive Person in Love, which is all mm -hmm. about, you know, what is it like to be in a romantic rela relationship when you are a highly sensitive person? And then there's also um, the highly sensitive child, which not only does it provide really good information about, you know, parenting a highly sensitive child, but it also talks about what if you as the parent are a highly sensitive person. So mm. I can't recommend that series enough when it comes to understanding sensory processing. Awesome. Okay. So in this episode, we talked about treatment for SPD. Um, we talked about impacting how SPDs impact socializing how it impacts resources for adults. And our next episode, we'll be explaining autistic fixations and special interests. This series has been quite a marathon, hasn't it? It has. It's a lot of, it's a lot of good information, though. And I appreciate you sharing your experiences um, as a person on, those in, on the spectrum and being open to that. Um, I think it's helpful for our audience, not that our audience who, you know, those of us or those of, on our audience who are on the spectrum will um, experience all of those or some of those. I think it's helpful for those on the, the, the spectrum and parents of autistic children to have your insights and your experiences. So thank you for sharing those. Yeah, likewise, thank you for, for sharing your background as a parent. Um, I think what's great about us as co-hosts is, you know, we learn from each other from two very different experiences of what Definitely. brings us together, which is autism. Definitely. Follow Understanding Autism on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to receive updates on our upcoming podcast episodes. I also make artwork and poetry to promote each episode. Now, when there are two or more parts to an episode, you only get one piece of artwork. I right, am not right. gonna- <laughs> yeah. No, you don't need Oh any. my God, yeah. Um, subscribe to Understanding Autism on YouTube and listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. Like, subscribe, and leave a comment. You can also listen to our podcast episodes on our website, which is understandingautism.info. If you have questions for us, post them on our Facebook group or email us at Brett and Nicole at understandingautism.info. All right, and thank you for tuning in. And we will see you next week. Until then, I'm Brett Thayer. And I'm Nicole Cabellas. <laughs>